In today's episode of The Breakdown, it's another takeover. This is Ray King, and I'm introducing my podcast that I host with Dr. Blanca Ruiz called Woke at Work. Our second season has just begun. In this episode, we talked to Dr. Hasina Moyadine, Assistant Dean of Equity and Inclusion at Vanderbilt University, about what it means to be a Muslim woman in America. She talks about her research about how Muslim youth find their religious identity in the midst of Islamophobia. She talks about what workspaces can do to support their Muslim co-workers during Ramadan, and also what she wishes everyone knew about what it means to be a Muslim woman in America. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Go to Woke at Work on any of your favorite podcasting platforms and subscribe. Blanca and I are here with a very special guest that I am so excited to welcome to our show. Uh, Dr. Husina Moyudin is um, joining us today, and I'm going to tell you a little a little bit about her. Um, Dr. Hasina is the assistant. First of all, I just want to preface this with saying you all know how like bomb our guests are and this is dr cena is just another example of that when she sent me her bio i was like wait what um i hadn't you just you never know the greatness that you are in the presence of and so dr cena is the assistant dean of the peabody office of equity diversity and inclusion and a research associate at Vanderbilt University. She recently received her PhD in the Community Research and Action Program at Vanderbilt University. Prior to joining the program, she received a BA in economics from Yale University and an MBA from Vanderbilt University. Her dissertation research explores the religious identity development for Muslim American youth in the context of widespread negative stereotypes of Islam and Islamophobia. As a research associate, Hasina is currently serving as the principal investigator on a study on digital inclusion and equity in Nashville. She is also an active member of the Nashville Muslim community and currently serves on the boards of the Maddox Foundation and Pencil. Hasina has been married for over 25 years to her husband, Schwab, and three sons, Ibrahim, Mohammed, and Isa, I did I say that right? Is it Isa or Isa? It is Isa. Uh-huh. It's Isa. Okay, awesome. I tried so hard, and and did I did I get your last name right or did I get it wrong? You got it great. Thank you. Ray. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I was like, as somebody with a name that gets mispronounced every single time someone opens their mouth, I try so hard um, to get pronunciations right. So please forgive me. Um, if, if I missed anything, but oh my gosh, that bio. Exactly. <laughs> Who gets an MBA? Like, I need to figure out my bio. I need to do something with my mind. is like, I taught, I led, and here I am, y'all. And meanwhile, oh, girl. we are excited to have you, Dr. Hasina. 
Thank I told, you so I told much. Hasina Please, that I was, was going to Latinify her name, but I'm not going to do that. We're excited to have you, Dr. Hasina. Actually, why don't we take the time to introduce it? Just you you go ahead and we love to give voice to, to you all. Like, what are the key identity markers? We can make a lot of assumptions based on bio, but sure. we'd love for you to just say, like, what are part of your identity markers? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and I so appreciate being here with the two of you and <laughs> sharing this space with you. Um, I, I think I, you know, um, first and foremost, identify as a Muslim woman. I think that's a really important and central part of my identity. Um, I'm also um, a Bengali American. My parents are from Bangladesh. Um, I actually was born here in the U.S. So, um, you know, I'm kind of in the in-between <laughs> 1.5 generation. Mm. Um, and I think it's really been interesting. Um, I actually just turned 47 this year. And so it's like... <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm at that age where like I'm three years from 50 and that's like half a century. And that's kind of like been like, ah, that's like a, I'm coming to a milestone, but it's just, I think with all the reflection this past year, COVID pandemic, that's been like just pausing to think about my life to this point. And, mm. and, and age is just something we don't talk about that much. And yeah. I think people assume I'm always younger than I am. And I, I know they mean it in a very nice way. <laughs> but I also was like, I want to come to that like space of wisdom. And yeah, know, like, like the elders. <laughs> it's so funny <laughs> that you say that. Lucina, well, like, we probably have different thoughts, but go ahead, Ray. <laughs> well, I'll be 40 this year in July. And I'm like, I can't wait. Finally, you know, it's like... Yeah. I, being like, I, I got married young and had kids young. And so everybody, all my friends were always much older than me. Yeah. And, you know, and so they were like, when are you going to be 30? Oh my gosh, it's taking you forever. And I was like, when are you going to be 40? And and so for me, I'm, I completely agree with you. Like, I love getting older. I'm like, I've earned it. I'm wiser. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I'm there. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was like, 25 years of marriage is its own bio. Like, what? <laughs> wow. So I was like, well, if I did my math correctly, at yeah. 10, she got married. She's 35 <laughs> now. That's, I mean, we can talk about this, but apparently not. So my math I, was wrong. Yeah, actually, actually, that was like, when I turned 40, Ray, I had been married for 20 years because I got married early too. I got married at 20. So I was like, gosh, I'm 40. But man, I've been married for 20 years. Yes. Oh my gosh. When I got, I was married and had a baby and was yes. not legally old enough to drink. Okay. Like yes. that's how, that's how early, um, how early I got started. And same thing. My husband and I this year will have been together for 25 years. Wow, congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank you. 20, together for 25 years, but married for less than that. And don't even ask me how long. I don't even know. I don't, I don't keep track. He's always like, really? <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, and I think that's a huge part of my identity as well. Just my family being a wife, a mother, um, you know, and you're outnumbered in your house. I you have three totally boys. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Like, you know, my kids are all, my youngest is 16. I have a 19 year old and a 21 year old and they're all taller and bigger than me. So it's like really outnumbered sometimes. <laughs> 
Isn't that something? Because I, I, I've been out of town all weekend and I got home yesterday and all the kids came to say hello. And I just very absentmindedly, my son was like to the right of me and I like reached over my arm to like hug him. And I had to like literally reach higher to, I was like, wait, what just happened here? It's like, I, I couldn't just pull him to me. Like I was, I don't know. My body was used to doing. I, I literally had to reach because he's so much taller than me now. <laughs> so sad. Well, we are so, so glad to have you with us today. Um, I'll just say briefly that you and I met. Um, a lot of our listeners know because they follow me on, on Instagram and I'm always posting about all the papers I have due and different things like that. But I am in a doctoral program at Vanderbilt University. And um, Dr. Hasina reached out to me um, to participate in a, um, a forum that, that you all hold there where a student interviews a professor. And my professor invited me to, to do that. But over the course of that, you and I went back and forth a couple of times and I just found myself really wanting to know more about your story and, and more about your experience. And when Blanca and I started this podcast over a year ago now, that's really what, what it was about. We wanted to invite women of color into a space to be heard. Um, Blanca talks a lot about the power of story and, and so we just want to hear your story and from that we've gotten so much great feedback from our listeners just like I was crying and you know um, moved and I quit my job and I actually lost we lost um, our podcast assistant Lysandra because I know. this podcast Right. It was so good. Was- I was listening to one of the one of the stories and y'all inspired me to go pursue it like Wait, hold on, we didn't mean to leave us. <laughs> right? And so now I she's love like that. Studying. That's wonderful. It is, right? She's studying to be a, a doula. Like that's what she decided she she wanted to do. And so this podcast you know, we're very happy that it's actually reaching um, the people that we hoped for it to reach. And, you know, people are being empowered by the stories um, that they hear here. So yeah. um, thank you again. The other, the other thing, too, is like just that there is not one single story for any of our experiences. So there's not like a one, you know, what does it mean to be woke at work is not one single way. And that's it's, yeah. it's been my in the last year, particularly as activism has increased. It's like we continue to believe that activism shows up in one way. Um, but that, you know, I mean, we talked about this in the last, in one of our previous, uh, recordings, but, um, but it's just, I think it's just powerful to just hear the different versions. And I mean, Ray, I don't, I want, I'm curious. I know we have, we have questions we want to ask you, but, um, you know, as someone who she raised doctoral, uh, is a doctoral student, I've gotten my doctorate research. Part of it is so important. Um, and so I want you to, it's sort of your fourth child, <laughs> I'm assuming when it was happening. So Dr. Asina, we're just, I'm just curious to know what, um, just what was your research? Cause we heard the title, but what was it? Yeah. What sparked it? What, um, and what do you want listeners to know besides like, they could actually read it, but we all know <laughs> that no, you know, not all of us are going to go out there and read 300 to 500 pages. So if you can give us the Cliff Notes version of what, you know, what inspired that. Um, sure. Curious to know. Yeah. So um, I am the mother of three Muslim boys, young men now. I know it's it's hard to believe when I started they were still boys, um, <laughs> but a big part of um, 
my interest in coming to the doctoral education program, Community Research and Action here at Peabody, was just um, thinking about how to support our Muslim youth. I, I think they are, um, you know, when I grew up um, way back when, <laughs> And, you know, people really didn't know a lot about Muslims. They didn't know about the Muslim community, about what it meant, um, I think. And I think um, that meant that we could largely kind of um, define ourselves and define our identity and define what it meant to be Muslim for uh, ourselves and our community. But what we see for a lot of Muslim youth, particularly post 9-11, um, is that they didn't have that chance. Like they had, there are such strong negative stereotypes of Muslims um, as terrorists, as women being oppressed, and all of these um, negative images that are in the media and social media all the time. And youth have to deal with that as they're developing their own religious beliefs and their own thoughts and identities. And so um, was really interested in learning more about how youth are navigating um, these macro systems and what support that they have um, in developing their religious identity development. And also just highlighting how resilient youth are, because our youth mm. are amazing. And the stories that they um, shared were amazing about how they thought about themselves and their communities. And so um, what I actually did was um, different sets of focus groups in a public school that had a lot uh, a large Muslim population in a public school that had few Muslim students and an Islamic school and just kind of to see how school settings impact how you think about their religious identities and how um, the different um, support systems might interact with one another um, to support youth voice and um, identity development. So it was a really interesting um, study. <laughs> and I learned a lot, um, you know, not just as a researcher, but also kind of, I think, as a community member, as a mother, to mm. think about, like, all these experiences that youth are going through in these different contexts and what it means to grow up as Muslim um, in this day and age. And that's yeah. what I love about, you know, that's why I think that it's so important that uh, women of color have access to, you know, um, being able to further our um, education in this way and research that matters to our communities when oftentimes I'm writing a paper and I'll pull up, you know, um, the Vanderbilt library and, and be looking for certain key terms. And I am surprised at how hard it is to find specific research about black women or specific mm -hmm. research about, you know, this group and this group. And it's only when we, you know, are in these spaces and we decide to to study and to tell the stories of our communities is it, that's all that's the point in which this research is, is going to grow. So I love that you were able to study something that I imagine connected you to your community, but was also of interest to you in your own home, right? Raising three um, sons. I'm, I'm curious. I'm sure there was a part of you that also wanted to know um, how their religious identity and how their identity was going to be shaped as they grew up in a, a really, a, um, I was going to say a post 9-11 country, but, you know, um, on, you could tell me whether or not that has made much of a difference or if, you know, the, the racism that Muslims and xenophobia and everything that Muslims are experiencing now um, has always been here. You know, Will Smith is so famous for saying like, as far as the cops 
in community black communities have been like it's not new it's just getting filmed you know and so oftentimes we hear about post 9-11 um xenophobia but did that make much of a difference and did that at all shape what you decided to focus on I, I, I do think 9-11 had a huge impact. I, I think, I, I definitely, I also agree that there's kind of a history of Muslims in America that are, isn't well known, right? Like, I, I think pe- the part of Muslims in America that people are aware of are, is the Nation of Islam and mm-hmm. the way, the, the part that Nation of Islam played in the civil rights movement with Malcolm X. And um, I think his history is more well-known um, than other histories, but it's it's really interesting that it goes much further back because if you think about Islam, um, historically, you know, it, it was kind of um, founded in the 600 of the Common Era. And so if you think about Christopher Columbus and Spanish sailors and things like that, there were Moors on those ships, right? Mm-hmm. And the Moors were Muslim and the Moors traveled the world just like Christopher Columbus did. And if you look at kind of records of like Indian tribes and treaties among um, the white settlers and Indians, you, you all of a sudden might see, you know, a Muslim name in there, Muhammad something. <laughs> oh, wow. It's part of the treaties because they had also come during... Um, earlier explorations and some settled and some um, stayed in the Americas. And so, and then of course there was just a influx of Muslims that came as slaves. And so part of um, the Muslim history in the United States is also tied up in, in slavery and, and um, you know, there's that's kind true. Of, yeah. There's and kind why of don't, famous history. I wish that we did know more about that. Like wouldn't our yeah. history classes be so much more interesting than they are now. If right. we recognize the fullness of all the stories represented here, I had no idea, you know, like you, yeah. you just taught me something right there about the Moors traveling during that time. And, um, how interesting to be able to see like a, a Muhammad on a, on a treaty, you know, yeah. um, I mean, you just had me thinking about when you were talking about your research. I think the most, uh, I think the beautiful part of it is it centered on the experiences of the the students, right? The the youth um, and not centered on the whiteness, right? So like you had three different areas, right? Where you're a majority, where it is centered on part of your essentially identity and then one where you're in the minority. Um, and so I've been just thinking a lot about socialization. So Ray, when you're like, I mean, the fact that our history is so one-sided or, you know, um, and that we have to fight in some cases, in some states, right? You have to fight for a complete history is just beyond me. Um, yeah. But the the impact, I've just been big on like just thinking a lot about our own socialization of, you know, so what does it mean? You know, you started to talk about 9-11, but what does it mean to have been a child during that time to be Muslim and and have to carry that identity and to be to not be Muslim? And then what has shaped your own perspective based on the narratives that were told in the media, based on how, you know, the response um, of the country was and, 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 you know, and sort of like we're experiencing now during the pandemic or in the last year with this heightened level of, of 
of civil responsibility and protesting of how students are, or children, sorry, not students, children are being socialized as well um, during these times is that these trials are now more public as these murders yeah. are more public, all of these things, um, just a socialization. But, um, but I loved how the research was really centered on the, their experience and what they have come to to unpack and believe and and, and how their environment might have shaped it. Um, and just thinking about how the narrative is not centered on um, other identities, but really centered on you, right? Um, and the importance of, of some of that in our own research. Sometimes I think about, you know, our own work and I'm like, it's very, I always think about it as it's very centered on the dominant culture, whatever that is. It could be patriarchy, it could be, you know, whiteness or whatever it is, but that this is not, we're not focusing on them, we're focusing on us. Yeah. So I appreciate it. At first, even in my classes, I was nervous to be that person, you know, that person who was always lifting the black experience or always lifting, you know, kind of the black woman of color uh, perspective. And then I realized, no, that's why, like, that's who I am. Right. And that's how I show up to these spaces. And if I backed down from that, my classmates might never you know, have the benefit of, of hearing about a particular, um, a particular experience. I'm curious, Dr. Hasina, what did you find, um, you know, through your research about how Muslim children were grappling with their, with their social and religious identity among, you know, all this rhetoric about Islam and, and Islamophobia? I, I, told you when we before we started recording that one of my one of my best friends is um a young muslim woman and if i remember her story correctly she didn't start wearing hijab until after 9 11 she's a she's a bit of a rebel she knows this you know she's 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 always down for a fight <laughs> and so um she was like oh you know basically like oh y'all y'all gonna say this about me y'all gonna come yeah. okay watch me i'm putting on my hijab and i dare you to say something so like like, that was kind of her response. What yeah. did you find in, in your research about how kids were responding? That's such a great story. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there is so much. I think youth, um, I think they are so aware of all of the things that are going on around them. And I think um, they, um, they very much understand kind of... Um, the reasons why things are happening around them. And I, I think um, one of the things that was really important is that, um, you know, Islamic identity is not just one thing. It's, it's multiple things to different kids, to different youth express themselves very differently. For some, it was kind of um, this communal bonding. Like, you know, we are in Ramadan, going to the mosque, feeling like the camaraderie. I think everybody, you know, People talk about that first iftar when, you know, you've been fasting all day and you get to break it with your family <laughs> and there's all this kind of celebration and having that kind of celebration and community feel to different aspects of worship, whether it's going to the mosque, whether it's, you know, coming together to break fast. And that's a really important part that a lot of Muslim youth talk about. And they also, um, you know, a lot of our Muslim youth are immigrants. So um, being able to be in... Um, spaces where there are a lot of Muslims and feeling like that feeling of community to that supports them was really important to them. I think, um, 
you know, for a lot of Muslim girls, I think, you know, about two thirds of the girls wore hijab, but one third didn't. And I think um, for those who wore hijab, it was very much a choice, just like your friend, right? Like they, they mm-hmm. are choosing to wear this, I think, which mm-hmm. is a very different narrative from like when I grew up from earlier generations, like, no, you have to wear hijab. No, <laughs> kids, I think all were very... Um, very adamant that this is a choice and this is a choice that they make for God because they are Muslims, that they really appreciate that. Um, I thought one thing that was really interesting, um, I had this focus group of girls at the public school that had a lot of Muslims. And I think a narrative that we hear a lot from not just Muslim youth, but with adults as well, is that when you do experience discrimination, you know, when you do experience um, hardship, to deal with it with patience, right? That patience is a virtue and that if you have patience in the in the face of hardship, God will reward you, right? There's this narrative. But this one girl spoke out and she's like, no. <laughs> and she's like, when something happens, you should absolutely go tell someone, tell a teacher, tell someone and... Um, because this is your faith and that you should stand up for it and you should like um, let people know that it's not okay to do these things. And like, mm. I tell you, the whole group like shifted and it was like, like this breath, right? Like she, <laughs> she was able to like articulate, like, no, don't just sit there and let other people say these things about your faith. Mm. And it just, um, and they're like, yeah, you're right. Like it was like the permission to advocate and to kind of have um, have that space. And so I think, and I think we see a lot, a lot of that, a lot more of that now. I think we have a generation of young people who are much more willing to advocate and to kind of stand up. And, um, you know, I, you know, we have these kind of dueling religious values. I mean, social justice and standing up for what's right and saying what's right is very much a part of Islam, just as kind of this idea of patience and, and kind of understanding and hardship. So it's like, what are people choosing and what are people um, listening to? And I think that there is a generation of Muslim youth who are really um, advocating for um, change. And I also think that they are understanding that the the Muslim um, issues are tied up with other issues of race and gender and, and all of these other isms that are kind of packed together. So I definitely think that there's a recognition um, among Muslim youth that our, our struggle is tied up in this larger struggle and that we need to play a part in um, in having a voice to push for greater justice for everyone. Uh, you know, as you were, you were talking, just thinking about... Um... And I think just the intergenerational piece and just, you know, um, it always feels like, you know, there's this rebel piece that exists, like, you know, between kids and their parents and those two generations. And so it is a very, um, as someone who, you know, who has grown up, I think, you know, I've always challenged just ideas of rules. I haven't challenged them always publicly, but, you know, just conceptually challenge them. And so what does it mean for any, 
you know, anyone to challenge some of the beliefs that the adults around them have, whether it's grounded in, mine was also grounded in religion. I grew up Catholic and I just was always challenging aspects of it where I was like, well, if that's to be the truth, then why? Da, 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 right. So I would always, and my mother's like, that's not, that's not how we talk about God in this house. You know, like, <laughs> like she always say it in Spanish, right? Like, and so, um, so it's always, you know, what does it mean to raise your children you know, to have these deeply ingrained values, which you feel like are really critical to your, you know, your family, your culture, and simultaneously raise them to be advocates for, um, for themselves and for the communities around them. So that's just, you know, and you mentioned, I forget what the word is you mentioned. I always think about the tensions of the and, right? Like that two truths can be the same, or you can hold two truths at the same time. And so I can be for my people, I can be for my cultural values, and I can also challenge some of the things that have been um, that have been misused or have been used uh, to oppress me or those things, right? And so, um, so that's just when you were talking about that, um, you just made me think of, of of how that you know comes up in many homes um, yeah. across, and so that line of similarity. It's funny because my faculty advisor was also Catholic, and so we we talked a lot about and, and it's so interesting. I think the similarities between faiths and and um, I, I think you know Catholics went through a very hard time as well as um, because of their of their faith and and how it was perceived and just how you navigate those tensions and. Um, understanding that we have a lot to learn from one another. Um, yeah. Doing that. yeah. I think that's a big piece of it. So many people, you know, particularly because of the rhetoric here in the United States, there's just so much that folks don't know and understand about Islam. Um, I think that when people think, you know, Islam, they think the Middle Eastern area, but actually I think I read something that said that like two thirds of, of the Muslim world is actually in Asia, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, as you mentioned being, you know, right. Bengali and if people don't think about that or think about the huge Muslim population in Africa. Um, even I think I read, I mean, yeah, if that's true. Then Arab Muslims, which is what, you know, we talk about so much here in the United States, they're a minority in the Muslim world and people, people just don't understand Islam in that way. Um, I was surprised that when my family went to Egypt a couple years ago, you mentioned what Americans know about Islam and, and, and thinking about Malcolm X, Malcolm X was so revered over there in, in Egypt. And I could not believe how much his story meant to, to people over there, but we don't think about even Malcolm X as a global figure, you know? And so um, just thinking about everything that we don't know, for people who are listening and, and not watching the video and you can't see, Dr. Hasina um, does wear hijab. And, you know, what are some misconceptions that you feel that people have about women when they see them in hijab? Um, um, that you would like to take this platform to dispel. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, you know, I, th I think that the thing that bothers me the most is like this perception that I don't know English. You know, I, I still remember like this. I, I remember a time when my oldest was really small. My husband and I were going to buy a car and he fell asleep in the back seat. And so my husband goes, gets the salesperson and is coming back to, to see me. And he turns to my husband, not even to me, and asks, mm -hmm. 
does she speak English? And I was just like, like, we're not buying a car from here. We didn't even start the wow story and you already right? got one. <laughs> right? Like, oh, hell no. Like, does she speak English? Oh my God. We need to not buy a car from here. I'm just gonna, you know. And so I, I think um, there's a perception of us as not being American. As, as being oppressed, I, you know, I think for a long time, I wouldn't associate myself with feminism because I felt like feminists in particular were very um, anti-Muslim. I, I felt like they were always trying to tell me <laughs> that, you know, I don't have to do this. And I'm like, I'm choosing to do this. <laughs> right, and right. So it, mm -hmm. it took me a long time to come back to feminism and to kind of reclaim um, like I, I do believe in gender equality and um, gender equity and thinking about what that means um, more broadly, but it just, um, yeah, it, it definitely pushed me away for, for many years. And then we just um, had this conversation, didn't we, Blanca, yeah. with uh, Carmen? I, I was just thinking the same thing. I yes. was like, oh my God, we just had this feminism conversation. <laughs> Yeah, we did. Um, just about, you know, how feminism has excluded yeah. so many groups other than white women for so long that as Latinas and black women and, you know, now hearing your story, Muslim women, we didn't even see that as an identity that we could claim. Right. And, right. Um, I'm wondering how much that's changing now, you know? Yeah. And I, I, definitely identify more with like womenism and um, there's like a movement towards transnational feminism that I think even thinking about kind of globally how women are positioned and, and the, the struggles of women across um, these geographic borders that, that's important um, because I, I think just the multiplicity of experiences that we don't like think about <laughs> um, that's really, yeah. that, you know, that manifests itself in, in like how we consume products and how things are brought to us and all of those things. And so, um, yeah, I have a, a, a questionable relationship with feminism, but I do think yeah. it's important. <laughs> you are not the only one who's constantly trying to figure out how to redefine and rework it. It's like, I, I get the yeah. concept. I believe in the concept. I just was never included in part of this equation. So, right. yeah. Um, and you know what's interesting is that a lot of it is how we dress, right? Like, I think the the wearing of the hijab, the covering up, I, I don't think people, and um, I just a plug for Saba Mahmoud's The Politics of Piety, and she talks about the piety movement in Egypt and, like, how women really claim wearing the hijab and being in those religious spaces as like authentically their own. And that's how they, um, they, they are agent agentic in those ways. Like this, this is me and having the way I dress and the way I cover actually helps me navigate the world in the way that I want to navigate the world yeah. and to be seen in the way that I want to be seen in the world. And, um, you need to respect that. <laughs> yeah. It, it's so funny. My girlfriend, who I, who I keep referring to, she was talking to me about growing up in, in Yemen and the differences of, you know, living there and living here. And she was explaining to me that her mom chose to wear the full covering. And forgive me if, if I, is it, is it the burqa? Um, yeah. 
Okay. And um, she was just saying, my mom, she, of course, she didn't have to do it. And she said, as a matter of fact, my dad preferred that she didn't. But she did it because she she just didn't want anybody looking at her. She's like, people get on my nerves. You know, if I'm wearing this, everybody leaves me alone. And, and you know, so just to your point that, you know, there are a number of reasons why a woman would choose to wear hijab or wear burqa. And, and, and our ideas of you know, what that means and whether that is it in line with the principles of feminism or not. See, I find it perfectly in line. For me, feminism is about having the freedom to choose, right? I get to choose uh, what I wear. I get to choose how I structure my household, whether or not I get married, where I work. Like, there is no one way to be um, a feminist. I felt um, quite feminist when I was a stay-at-home mom. And I didn't work out at the house. I didn't feel any less feminist then because it was my choice. I chose to be here and take care of my family. And at that time, that was that was what I felt. That's how I felt empowered. Um, and and so that's what that's what I love about feminism in its true form. I think the question that we're really still grappling with um, as a society is: Can feminism, the movement, make room for all of make room for all of these? identities and what does it look like um, to do that. Um, I want to talk about your work in DEI. Um, I, Blanc and I, Blanc and I met actually when I <laughs> was a D DEI director um, at, a, at a national nonprofit and really struggling my way through it. And so my heart actually kind of goes out to women, when, women of color, when I see that we are in these these positions, because for me, it was hard. And I know for a lot of women of color, it, it is very difficult because the expectations um, outweigh the support that we get a lot of times. And so can you just talk a little bit about what drew you to um, be in, you know, the, the work of, of DEI and um, some of what your experiences have been and what your hopes are for what you can bring to that kind of position? What a great question. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I think honestly, um, you know, our life journeys take us on many different paths, right? Like it was through a research project that I was working on um, that I um, really got to know um, Associate Dean Sharon Shields. And so we were working on a, a, a number a, a couple of research projects together. And, um, you know, one of the things that she knew about me is that I actually grew up here in Nashville and, and really um, was hoping to, to stay in Nashville if possible um, after I got my degree. Um, and then, um, so when a position opened up in the Dean's office before, um, it was actually a director position of um, equity, diversity, inclusion. She was like, Hasina, is this something that you would be interested in? <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, and you you make that decision about um, this was not exactly what my goals were when I entered my um, doctoral program, but it was definitely an area of interest for me. I think equity and inclusion has always been something that I've been interested in and something that I've studied in my program, but was not the career path that I thought I would take. You know, I was thinking mm -hmm. academia, I'm going to teach, I'm going to do these things. Um, mm -hmm. But then this opportunity presented itself and um, I took it. I, you know, I applied for the position and, and, um, and it's been um, 
a really interesting journey, right? Like you said, <laughs> yeah. equity, diversity, and inclusion as a, a woman of color, as a Muslim woman has, um, it's, it's challenging and there are there is always something to do and something more that can happen. At the same time, um, I think the things that um, that have meant the most to me is when students come and um, are are willing to advocate, you know, and um, want our support in advocating with them because they trust us to, to do the work. And I think that that means so much to have the trust in... Um, the knowledge that students will come to us and want us to help support them in, in working on these issues together. Um, and I think one thing that has also really heartened me in this, in this last year is that like just also visible um, faculty movement in working on mm. issues of equity and inclusion, particularly in classrooms. I think the faculty at Peabody has done a lot of work from, um, we've, we've started like faculty EDI and teaching workshops where they're getting kind of peer coaching. And, you know, the, the professor that brought us together, Eve Rifkin, is kind of supporting those um, uh, peer mentoring groups as well. And just thinking about ways in which faculty can think about these different issues that arise in the classroom and ways that they can address it in more equitable, inclusive ways. Um, I think also um, having the support of higher administrations yeah. has yeah. meant a lot yes. to because it means that I can kind of take some risks, say mm. some things that I might not say otherwise, because I mm. feel like I have someone who has my back. And I think yeah. that is always, um, I think that's always a concern when we're doing this work, right? Because I think people get very sensitive and it's very easy to blame it on the EDI person. Um, yeah. Even though it's not a one person, it's never right. a one person. <laughs> But yet, you know, I've worked with uh, lots of folks yeah. who are in equity inclusion across different sectors. And the, the piece that is always like the amount of weight that is placed on this role to solve yeah. a problem, like to right. solve yeah. a pandemic, large problem, like, wait, 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 y'all know you had this, that I'm not the cause of it. So therefore I can't right. solve it. One, two, that this is actually about a communal solution. I am here right. to sort of be a vessel for the multiple places, right? And so, yeah. um, and I, I just wish organizations knew that, right? Like, or yeah. even people who go and like, well, you know, you're the chief equity person or you're the equity diversity inclusion person or you're supposed to, it's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I am here to be a vessel, to be a like everyone has to. So to hear that staff and faculty are really trying to engage in how did this, how does this come up in my space, right? right. Not that you come in and fix my space, but that right. you know that there's a that there's a collective responsibility. You know, I always say this that those roles should ultimately be obsolete. Yeah, the very <laughs> fabric of your existence as any entity and organization should be about equity, inclusion, and belonging, yes. um, and diversity, right? Diversity of thought, diversity of people. But you know, but I'm like the amount of weight that's placed on people, and then to raise point that the I don't know what the statistically the number. Is. I'm like uh, I've been a rebel since dissertation days about like numbers. <laughs> I don't really know the numbers behind it, but the amount of weight for women of color um, that it, the amount of weight that women of color carry uh, in trying to solve and fix these problems that um, 
that it just so, it sort of feels like cyclical to me. I'm like, of course you gotta fix the stuff we didn't create. Um, yeah. I like I'm cleaning up the spilled milk again, right? Like, yeah, we call it the cleanup woman, right? Like we have a whole <laughs> name for it um, when we're yeah. brought in as women of color to to clean up messes that that we didn't make. But I've grown to feel that some of us are really called to this work and can have the the fortitude that it takes um, to to do this under so many you know difficult circumstances. And I, I decided I was not one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> it was not my calling. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I appreciate clearly it's yours. Yes, I do. That, that you know, that I, I, I think one of the big things here too is that I have the ability to bring more people to the table, right? Like I I have the um, ability to say, well, what about this person? Or what about that person? And just mm-hmm. make sure that there is greater representation, not just kind of at like these entry levels, but at these other levels as well. And so I think making sure that um, we think about whose voices are making decisions and how those decisions are being made, I think it really does help to have someone saying, but, you know, you need to have a more representative representative group making these decisions. And I think, um, you know, that's one of the things um, that I hope I am able to do. And uh, Bianca, to your point, I, I totally, like, I think one of the things that Peabody has been able to do is this past year, you have just seen a, a greater amount of departmental program and student EDI committees forming and working on these different levels, right? Not just at the college level, but at the department and program level um, to kind of talk about issues because you're exactly right. It's not, you know, it's not just this one person. It's everybody in all of these spaces that need to work on this together. Yeah. And like you said, having that administrative support is is everything from from the top down. As a matter of fact, I, I told myself if ever I was going to do this again or anything like it, um, that would be a top requirement for me. Like it's a no go for me if it if it becomes clear that you know the very top levels um, of management are are not on board. So, um, okay. Well, one last question then, um, and this will actually probably lead us into our wow story a little bit. But um, we are in the holy month of Ramadan and and for our listeners here who are in positions of you know management or executive positions where they can help to make some of those decisions um a lot of times they're very curious what can they do to help make sure that their muslim co-workers are supported during this time right thank you for that um i you know i think one of the things that we had kind of talked about early i think maybe before we started recording was um, <laughs> you know it's not always about hunger it's also about kind of being tired because you're fasting from sunrise to sunset and for muslims who um are practicing as well a lot of times there's also special evening prayers and you know sunset right now is about 7:20 and so by the time you do your evening the evening prayers start at like 8.40 and can go up to like 10 o'clock, right? So people are either fasting or praying like most of the day and then kind of getting up at 4.30 in the morning before they fast to have kind of a um, uh, 
pre-sunrise meal. And so you're talking about people who are running on very little food and very little sleep. And so just being aware of kind of the conditions of um, Ramadan and, um, you know, lightening people's load a little bit, um, I think providing prayer spaces as uh, for people that they can, if they're not eating lunch, they could have maybe a space to um, pray or um, read the Quran. I think one thing that people may not understand is for our prayers, we also do ablution. So we wash our, our hands, our, our face, our feet. Um, and, you know, the extent to which, you know, Muslims should also support all gender bathrooms <laughs> is like, the, you know, having a private space to make ablution is, is great. So the extent to which um, private bathrooms are available for Muslim staff. Um, and I like, you know, I mentioned like, that's what all gender bathrooms often end up being, right? Like a, just a private space that Mm -hmm. um, people can go to um, and that's important so for that's important for multiple of your staff potentially so I think oh go ahead Ray no I was just gonna make a, a ridiculous comment about I cannot believe that there is so much pushback about bathrooms you know <laughs> and it's just like it's just a bathroom people like let's just make like Actually, when my, my family spent lots of time in South Africa and they they already had non-gender bathrooms. And for me as an American, it was kind of like, wait, what? Like, where, where do I go? Like, what am I supposed to do? And right. which one is my kid supposed to go into? But it was just it was just the way there. And after a while, you got used to it, knowing that you could go into either space and it was going to be fine. So that's all I was just going to yeah. say. Just like, I and cannot the, believe it's good for multiple deal. reasons. Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> And, and so, yeah, I think that um, all of those things are really important. And, and I think it's um, one thing to also note is that not all Muslims fast, right? There's many reasons that you might not be fasting because of your age, because you have an illness that makes you take medication during the day um, that, you know, um, for for a variety of reasons. And a lot of those reasons are kind of personal reasons. So if, if someone isn't fasting, it's probably better not to ask why, because those are often personal private reasons that um, people can't fast. Um, I think Ramadan greetings are also very much appreciated. Um, Ramadan Mubarak or Ramadan Kareem, I think Muslims really do appreciate getting those greetings and knowing that people um, know that it's Ramadan and mm -hmm. are supporting them. So those are just a few things that I might suggest. Awesome. So, uh, before, and the other thing I do want to always lift like ch students, right? So mm -hmm. if you have listeners who are in education systems um, yeah. and just thinking about, you know, um, I know when I was in middle, I had, you know, when I was in the middle school for years, uh, it took a minute before we actually uh, provide separate prayer spaces for some of our students um, mm -hmm. and provided alternatives to lunch, right? So like they didn't have to, you know, be in the cat, like being in the cafeteria, yeah, yeah. providing a couch, like yo, you get tired, this is it, you know, mm -hmm. and how, what does it look like? to be um, teachers and or, you know, whatever, coworkers, any of those spaces. Any, but what does it look like to um, open yourself up to the possibility? So I don't, you know, I, I'm always personally so conflicted with this idea of, um, because I do a lot of race and equity work, the constant thing that we often hear is like, folks of color should not have to do the lifting for white folks and da 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 da, right? Like, right. I shouldn't have to bring it to your attention. This is part of your <laughs> self awareness work. And so, therefore, part of the self awareness work around 
okay, I know Ramadan is coming up. I don't know who identifies as Muslim, actually, right? Like, and I shouldn't ask to have to go around saying, well, do you, do you identify as Muslim? Should I provide you with the, you know, like, um, and so, and nor should somebody who's Muslim have to say, like, excuse me, this, this, these are the things I need, right? Um, we should have those options available, right? We should be thinking right. about them proactively. It was like, you right. know, when our organization started to have more people having children and, and we were like, uh, where is our nursing room? And they were like, oh, don't need that? Oh, hold on. Here's an electrical closet. And we're like, y'all got to come better than that, right? And so the same mm -hmm. thing for us is like, you know, as a school, we evolved over time to figure out what were prayer spaces, where they, who had couches, you know, what, what could we set up um, and how could we be aware of that and have the proactive conversations with families, right? So like we know that, and, and put it in some of our letters, we are not sure that everyone who celebrates uh, and, and recognizes Ramadan, but if you and your family does, please reach out to us. Here are some systems of support we have, and we would love to know how else we can support you to let you know we're doing some of our own work. And yeah. we don't know everyone's individual story. So if there's anything else you need, please let us know. We're happy to like address it. But I do want to lift it for like our educators um, as some of our own, you know, like children are trying to figure out their way and navigating mm -hmm. what it means uh, for them and, you know, um, and provide spaces of support. And then the other thing I'll say is that parents who have, um, there are a lot of great books. I heard my, in my son's uh, class, they did a beautiful read aloud about it. I forget what the name of the book is. It's a, a character named Layla. Um, and little girl in the story, I gotta look it up. Um, the little girl in the story, her mother gives a note to give to the teacher, say, hey, Layla will not be eating. Here are the things that we, we don't, she shouldn't go. But then Layla felt different from everyone else. So Layla didn't want to give it to the teacher. And so all the kids were trying to be nice. Oh, Layla forgot her lunch. Here's a sandwich. Layla forgot her. Here's this. And mm -hmm. you know, they were trying to be nice. And finally, she had a conversation with the teacher who, um, spoiler alert, sorry for everyone. Um, she had a conversation <laughs> with the teacher who said, you know, oh, is that what's happening? Well, maybe you should write a letter. So then Layla wrote the letter to her teacher saying, hey, sort of her own self-advocacy. This is what's happening. And my mom left you a note. Here it is. Um, so I just want to lift that, you know, yeah. that while we always think about this in the adult spaces, is that our kids are also navigating, you know, yeah. uh, you know, third graders to 10th graders to, you know, middle schoolers are also, you know, and for them exhaustion, like this is the first time they're doing it or yeah. they, you know, our bodies, you know, are not used to it. Right. And so yeah. what does that look like? to have these expectations. Um, so yeah, so I just want to make sure we, uh, you know, I'm always about like the teachers out there, y'all, we need to do better. So you know, what's really call. interesting, like this was also part, like part of my study was, you know, at the Islamic school. So Ramadan is like when it's during the school year, it's part of the curriculum. Everybody's knows everybody's doing everything to support. Um, in the public school that has a lot of Muslim students, there's also kind of support for religious practices. And, um, you know, I, I think like that they know because of kind of the Muslim population. And then the schools that have few Muslim students, the students are like Layla, right? They're like, I'm not sure I should say anything. I don't want to put people out. And, and so it's, it's like that context also matters, right? Like those spaces that we're in. And I agree with you, like, the, like it has to be both families and schools kind of working together to figure out what, what works best for youth. But I think, um, I think it's really, uh, 
I think communities are better about it as well, right? Like when I was growing up, it was my mom and me, like either talking to our teachers or talking to um, the administration to let them know I can't do X, Y, Z. But now, you know, mosques are getting better about like, here's a letter you can give to your your teachers. Here's, you know, here's some supports that you can ask for. Yes, you you can get A, B, C, and that's part of accommodations that like schools should be giving you. So I think also making parents aware, like, right, like a lot of parents don't know what they can ask for. So um, I think like that, that working together and, and engaging communities with schools is so important. So I really appreciate kind of that story and, and um, thinking about both what schools can do as well as how parents can engage um, to support youth. Well, I just want to say that, you know, I live in a predominantly Muslim community, actually, and I don't know if this is allowed, but if so, can someone please invite me to the next Muslim party? Because on the day that Ramadan started, I heard music and laughing and I was my husband was like, I want to go. Like everybody was having so much fun. And at first we couldn't awesome. figure out what was going on. And we were like, Oh, tomorrow starts Ramadan. This is probably yeah. like, you know, yeah. some big kickoff party. So, you know, I, I, I'm not Muslim, but can I just come to the party sometime? That's all I want to know. <laughs> well, I, I will say that, you know, this year COVID and um, all of the social distancing and everything, but um in in many um, non-pandemic years, mosques have <laughs> o- often opened doors to Muslims and non-Muslims for iftar and, and just the, the meal that you used to break the fast, to bring the whole community together. And so that um, non-Muslims could also understand kind of what Ramadan means for Muslims and, and join in the community. So I think yeah. <laughs> look for those. <laughs> and I will. in the next year when we're all um, kind of yeah. hopefully in this post-pandemic time we can um come together yeah we we live out we live across the street from like in a big event center so it was like a big outdoor thing and this right. definitely wasn't a mosque thing let me tell you because okay. the party was <laughs> the party was going like you got to make friends ray that's all you got to talk to people and like listen you got to you and the book is called Layla's Lunchbox so if anybody's oh, looking to like beef okay. up their li- library the book is called Layla's Lunchbox so just want to make sure I wanted to plug it in. Awesome. Okay. Well, listen, Blanc and I always have this problem where we could talk to our guests for forever and ever, <laughs> but you have things to do. And, and so we're, we're going to move along. And um, you already, like Blanca said, you already shared a wild story <laughs> um, for sure, but um, I'm sure you prepared um, something else. And so in a second, we will come back and hear that story. Uh, we 
are back, Blanc and I, with Dr. Hasina, and um, she is going to share with us her her wow story. We love these stories. One, they, a lot of times it's like, what? Oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened to you. But again, we we like we think that these stories help to build community and to let us all know that we are not alone when people say crazy stuff to us or crazy yeah. things happen. And so, yeah. um, Dr. Hasina, please share your story. Okay, so. Um, the, th- the thing that came to mind is I think one of the most difficult, like, encounters I have actually had is um, I was part of an interfaith um, scripture study, and it was with um, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, right? And so the idea was we would have a topic like relationships or uh, food or something like that, and then we would hear kind of scripture from um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam um, about the topic, and, and it was um, meant to kind of, you know, not just um, help us, like, individually understand each other, but kind of from a religious point of view as well. So I was in this group, and, um, you know, uh, I think they wanted to do it kind of chronologically. So Judaism was first, uh, then Christianity, and then Islam. And um, and I don't even remember what the topic was at this time, but one of the participants was like, but what do you think about the Prophet Muhammad being a warlord? And I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, like, really, it came out of... Oh, my like, gosh. Um, yeah, and, and just, like, he was always at war, and he was just, like, just a very negative and very wow. um, messed up interpretation of the prophet's life and really wow. just, um, like, painting this picture of someone who is very important to me and to my faith and just um, in this interfaith setting, right? Like, so you really aren't expecting it. It really mm-hmm. came out of um, left field. And I, I think um, just really felt like I knew, I know people have these views. I, I've never had to, um, deal with it like head on like this and yeah. it's like um you always hope you're gonna say the right thing and you it's just it's too much shock it's just yeah like, the shock factor of what happened just like ah <sighs> uh, it was just it was it was a hard moment and then yeah. um, like, just a lot of like just hearing you today and this isn't yet another story um it's just the amount of assumptions and and that are made from um, false history, no history, no knowledge, right? And just like that's just the part where when we are advocating for a robust curriculum that teaches multiple perspectives, that's what you know. Like, well, where did that come from? Because that come came from some kind of socialization from either schooling or some right. documentary you watched or something, you know. Um, and so I'm just thinking a lot, you know, when when we talk about the hijab before and all of the assumptions people make about women who wear, you know, Muslim women who wear hijabs and um, what does that mean connection to feminism and all these things just makes me think about. Where, where did you learn this from and what's the well, how, how do we need to tackle this unlearning to learn um, to learn a real history told by the people well, 
it's just a strange question anyhow, because you would struggle, especially in an interfaith sec, um, right. you know, um, session, because you'd struggle to have any religious story that did not include war. Like, you know, I'm a Christian and there was, there's war all in the Bible. You know what I'm saying? And, and people right. have gods of war even in other religions. And so, you know, truth or not, it's just a strange question, you know, to, to ask because I can't think of a religion that doesn't have some kind of uh, blood spill in its history, mainly because it is human beings and our imperfection that are charged with, you know, spreading whatever it is, the gospel that, that it is we're using it, and we don't always get it right. So it's just, what a strange question. Yeah. And, and I, it, it just, it really felt confrontational, right? Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, there's a, I felt like it was a direct, um, direct attempt to discredit Islam, right? It was like very, um, antithetical to what you consider interfaith work, which is to kind of build those bridges and build those relationships. And I, I think um, for me, it was also kind of a reminder <laughs> that, you know, it's okay to not have a response. Like I should not have thought that I need to respond to this, right? Because mm. I, think, I think that's also what we feel. I feel like that we, um, we get defensive and um, we want to defend our faith and, and or any other aspect. But when someone comes at you like that, they're not coming for understanding. And I think it's right. okay to recognize that and to say like, I'm not going to engage in this conversation. And so um, I, yeah, you don't have to be like the flag bearer for your entire people or your entire religion in that moment, right? right. Like, yeah, right. you don't have to engage. You have the freedom yeah. to choose to engage or not. And like, I think, I think that's the piece is like, I'm, yeah. I'm not always going to, I can, I can land a mean look to get you. <laughs> now, that's crazy. I'm not even going to give you the satisfaction of right. debunking that because that's your work and I am not going to make it my work, right? So, yeah, but, but look at my face and, and you should be able to know how I feel about what you just did. Yeah. yeah. So sometimes that's enough. Um, well, listen, I, I had an experience this weekend, you know, speaking of responding or not responding where... I was attending something and as one of just a couple of black women there, I wasn't even in my room yet, had not even finished unloading my bag from my car. When a woman comes up to me and asks me, oh, are you the singer? She asked me if I was if the I was whole singer. thing. You you were singing. You've been holding back for how right. many of these like, Are you are you our singer? And I was like, excuse me. No, I am not the singer. Sean said I should have started singing right there on the spot and asked her what she thought. What do you think? Does that, does that sound good enough? Are you not entertained um, at this point? And so, but I didn't. I, I just, you know, kind of laughed it off and was like, no, I know that um, the woman you invited to sing is a black woman, but I am not she. Okay, I am actually here to enjoy the same experience that you're here for, but neither here nor there. And then you go back and you think about it, and you're like, I should have said this, and I could have said that. And, but sometimes we just choose to to leave it alone because that's our business, and that's that's what we want to do. So, um, all right, well, listen, we have a question 
from a from one of our listeners um, that you may be able to to help shed some light on Dr. Asina. So um, we'll get to our dear woke at work. Oh, dear woke at work. Here, listen, yes, we need dear woke at work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got a letter from a Okay, so um, this letter is um, actually an HR kind of question, and um, oh, I know I know <laughs> HR professionals. Although I don't know when I was in the um, when I was in the DEI department, it fell kind of under HR. As a lot of you know equity work does. So, Doctor Cindy, you might have some thoughts. But this is from Stacy Elizabeth, and she said. I've been working with my employer for almost 10 years now. In the last few years, as they like to put it, the industry has taken a downturn, in quotation marks is what she said. One year ago, most employees took a 5% pay cut. I was one of them. Shortly after the pay cuts, my manager went out on 12 weeks FMLA, that's the Family Leave Act, and I was asked to step in, as I've done previously, and cover some of her duties. Earlier this week, I sent an email to my manager asking to be restored the 5% as well as considered for a merit increase for my upcoming anniversary. In the email, I laid out my contributions and the additional duties that I have been assigned over the last year. I'm cautiously optimistic about the outcome and preparing for a negative response at the same time. I can't afford to walk away from my job. Your thoughts and recommendations, please. All right. So do we have any thoughts for Miss Stacy Elizabeth? Do you want to start or do you do you, do you want to start? Hasina? I you know, I this is such an interesting question. It is it is um you know, I, I think Anytime someone is given additional responsibilities, they should be compensated for what those responsibilities are. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I wish corporations, <laughs> nonprofits, all, all of these organizations recognized that you need to pay people for the work that they do. Um, I, I think, but also having other options of um, how she might be compensated, maybe professional development funds, things that she can do to like um, days, you know, working from home. I think Ray had mentioned some, some things that other, other ways that she could be compensated if she can't be compensated with salary might be things to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Blanca, what do you think? Well, um, you know, I, I mean, I always think of that individually she did, you know, you did what needed to get done, which is advocate for yourself. One thing that we often do is like take on the work, get upset about it, we complain to somebody and then that's where it lives. And so like the fact that you put this all in writing, the fact that you gave a bulleted list, right? Um, and even if they come to you and say, listen, we can compensate you for one and not the other. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not the one to give up fights. Um, and they, <laughs> but I've been on the other side of these maternity leave conversations as someone who has taken it several times, which has been like, my salary is sitting there. So what were you planning on doing when you dispersed um, the finance, you know, like when you dispersed the responsibility and as someone who has managed people through maternity leave, one of the things that I have said is your salary is X. 
Who's taking on your load? Let's actually divide up your work. Great. Three people. What's the financial competence? What's the percentage of each of these and why? Right. Um, and that's a, that's not that's not the, the, the listener's responsibility. But it is to say that the money is sitting there. Right. Um, there is this this and some of it goes to FMLA and maybe organizations will try to, you know, tell you that it's not there. Um, but the money is sitting there. And so there's some sort of organizational responsibility. But I think do think that for the listener, you did what you needed to do, which was advocate for yourself rather than like saying this is part of it. And I think the other advocacy piece that I would just add um, is that as they move through this idea of dividing up people's responsibilities when they're on FMLA, um, that it is an organizational responsibility to figure out what the financial compensation is. That shouldn't be sitting on me as the person who's going on FMLA. And that should not sit on me as a person taking on responsibility, that that's an organizational piece. Um, and so unfortunately, it leaves us advocating. Um, and for those of us who might be going on FMLA, it is like sort of our responsibility to say, hey, I know y'all got to figure out who's taking on my job. By the way, make sure they're compensated for it. Right. Like yeah. I think that there's some kind of communal responsibility to that. But I think you did an amazing job, you know, like with with advocating for all of your needs. And so. Um, right. Because how many women of color, how many of us don't do that? Right. I mean, so, so, so often we've been taught to just be thankful that you have that job. You know, don't go asking those people for, you know, anything else or any more or whatever. And so I think over several generations, we've learned to just kind of take what we get, you know, and don't realize the negotiating power that we do have. And like Dr. Hasina, um, you know, mention like, okay, so you recognize, first of all, here's, here's the thing about negotiations. I love to negotiate. And I, you know, when I went to Egypt, um, I remember when being like in, in, in a shop and wanting to buy something and the man quoted me a price and my tour guide was like, she was like, you know, like telling me like, no, that's not it. Negotiate, negotiate. She was nudging me. And I was like, uh, okay, no, how about this much? You know? And then I was like, Oh, I like this. Right. And so I really came to enjoy the haggling. But you what you did, Stacey, was you recognize, first of all, I feel like a key to it is recognizing the end game. Right. Like you already know that you can't afford to lose this job. That's important in the neg negotiating process, because then don't go in there and say like, well, if you don't do this, I'm going to leave because, you know, you're not going to leave. Right. Because you've already admitted that you can't. But you can ask for other things. Um, you can ask, can I, can I work from home one day a week? Um, you can ask, well, can we add on some time to my vacation package? Um, what other things, like Dr. Hasina said, can you pay for some um, um, professional development and give me a, a stipend to travel? Like, if it can't be that you give me my 5% back and then some, what else can can you provide in recognition of, of the work that I've contributed? But also, like Blanca said, just kudos to you for even taking the step to negotiate for yourself. And um, you know what? Write us and let us know how it goes. Woke at work at the northstar.com or um, hit us up on Instagram and Facebook. Um, now I'm invested, right? And um, you, you're going to write and I'm be like, no, go back and see this. Tell them that. <laughs> I just want to know oh. how it I mean, I will say also the thing that you did that I don't know if other people are listening is you asked for more. You were like for maternity leave plus a merit pay. So like if they come at you with one, you can, you know, like you leave yourself some wiggle room. It's like here, you know, it's like 
the negotiation of whatever, whatever you were doing in Egypt or whenever people are trying to purchase, <laughs> whatever they're trying to purchase, it's like, how about this? Okay, okay, I know you're not gonna give me, but okay, how about this then? You know, it's right. like settling in um, on it. Um, but yeah, thanks for, I mean, I think thanks also for being an example of being an advocate for yourself. Yeah, 100%. It's okay. my favorite time, y'all. We are going yes. back to our final. It's not my favorite time, Dr. Hasina, because it signals the closing of <laughs> our segment. Segment, but it is. Um, we're gonna come back to to so that you can have a few minutes to prepare your affirmation. These are the words that you want our listeners uh, to hold on to. And so, um, when we get back, we'll get into affirmations. All right. Affirmations. Okay. Um, Dr. Cena, yes, our conversation with you has been has been so great and so enlightening. And if Thank we could so ask much. you just for one more thing, sure. and, and that's to leave our listeners with some parting words that they can be, you know, meditating on or holding in their hearts as they move throughout the rest of their day. Sure. Um, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about, and I, I think um, we've talked a little bit about this, but like, I think this has been just such a year. And I think um, the idea that we can hold joy and grief at the same time um, it's really important to affirm that and, and that, that we can live in that space because um, I, I feel like there's, there's been a lot of joy in this year. I mean, there's, there's um, been, you know, people getting married, people having kids, all of these things that are joyous events. And, but it's always been tinged with sadness because of everything that's going on in the world. And at, at the same time, there's been great sadness in our lives and, and people that we've lost. And, but even in the midst of that, there's been joy. And I think um, just like affirming that we can hold these two things at the same time, um, that we can hold both the joy and grief, um, and that that it's it's okay to feel all of the feelings. <laughs> and I think that that's been something that I've been really thinking about, and that's really been kind of important to me um, this past year is just like being okay with holding both at the same time. That it's yeah. okay to feel it's so important joy in the middle of grief and grief in the middle of joy and that it's it's okay to feel all of those feelings and so that's the affirmation i want to leave people with. Thank okay. you no we need we need that we need that reminder all the time of being able to hold the multiple things and multiple truths um as i like to say um multiple feelings right kids are kids are experts at it and i think sometimes as adults we're like which one is it are you happy or are you sad and like, <laughs> right? like yeah. and so how do we channel that that what what i like to say is uh for those of you who have watched inside out uh the movie inside out is the animation a pixar one where joy needs sadness and so yeah you know i have yeah. <laughs> yeah awesome well thank you so much dr thank hasina you. um thank for this you conversation. Both. yeah, yeah. 
thank you for using your energy um, and time to be with us um, here today and uh, look forward to getting this conversation out to our listeners so they can benefit from your wisdom. And thank you for holding the space, knowing that, you know, like you too probably have your energy expense (laughs) as it has been used up. And so thank you for holding that. Um, And hopefully you do take some time to replenish your soul or hopefully or maybe this helped to replenish it. Hold on. (laughs) It was a wonderful conversation and it did. I loved being here with both of you. So thank you for that. Okay. Let us make time for reflections. 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 Okay, so Blanca, um, you know, what a what an important conversation. I'm so glad that we were able to have um, Dr. Um, Hasina on. I, I'm, I've been thinking, you know, as we talk about reflection, I've been trying to decide, okay, which one do I want to, I thought I knew what I wanted to say until we got to her affirmation and she talked about joy and grief. I was going to talk about feminism and, and how, you know, what it looked like to broaden the tent and all that. But I actually, I think I'm going to reflect on her joy and grief Um, statement, because it's actually something that I've been grappling with the last couple of weeks as, you know, um, the Derek Chauvin trial has been taking place. And, you know, we've been talking about Mm -hmm. Adam Toledo, the 13 year old boy who was killed by police and Dante Mm -hmm. Wright. And, you know, the way that I use social media isn't always for advocacy. If there's something on my mind, you know, um, as far as protest and all that kind of stuff is concerned, then I'll say it. But, you know, I, I post my sweaty workouts. Mm-hmm. I, plus, I, I, I post my plants. Um, and I you found myself- the, um, across the country trip that I was right. Like, oh, I didn't know you were doing that. And then, who this woman? This random woman. Sorry, random woman, if you're listening. You were random up until then. But like, sorry. I like, like, I literally get, I have not been on social media for a while. So like, I got to, gl- I get glimpses of it. And I'm like, who that? Right. Who is that? It was it up. Okay. The most random, the most random encounter. But so, I mean, we were like instant friends. It was the weirdest thing. I don't know if I've ever had that happen before, but I found myself while I was on my cross country trip, I went to San Diego, California for a few days by my own self okay and San Diego uh, right it's such a great city and I and I wanted to like post my beach pictures and post this stuff and I was like oh but everybody's talking about this thing and I don't want to look disrespectful and will people think that I don't care or that I'm not thinking about it and so you know Dr. Hasina talking about holding joy and grief at the same time especially as a woman of color it's like I don't have to wear my grief on my sleeve or on my chest as a badge 24 7 right I can post this this recipe or this picture of this food and also you just have to assume that I'm also holding the group of of what my people are experiencing at the same time, you know, so just that's what I'll be reflecting on and really thinking about from the conversation. That is the, yeah, I mean, I wasn't reflecting on it until you re-reflected on it, so I mean, you know, I do I often think about the duality of multiple things existing at the same time, and so that has been my my sort of 
you know, I I feel like I've been sitting in that. Like, I love being around my family. That's the beauty of this time. It's like, whoa, we will never have it again. And at the same time, okay, y'all getting on my nerves. I need to go for a walk, right? Like, both of those things are happening at the same time. Yes. Um, but, I, you know, I've just been thinking a lot. Um, you know, I do a lot of racial justice work and all that. So I feel like I say that on everyone. Um, so sorry, listeners, for repeating that. <laughs> but one of the things, though, that it does make me think about um, is the amount, and I don't like the word blind spots, but because it assumes that, like, I'm not intentional, you know, it, 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 it takes away the intentionality. But there are so many things we don't know and that we think we know. And so just hearing the elevated story of, Muslims of Muslim women, uh, mm-hmm. the amount of like from her wow story, from Dr. Hasina's wow story to um, just thinking about the the stories and the voices she shared of some of the the youth she interviewed, um, just has me thinking a lot about what uh, what have we been socialized to believe, and what happens when we don't engage in conversations around these things, um, mm-hmm. and so. What does it look like for me to do my learning so that when I have conversation with my students or my children, that we can have an informed conversation and really think about other cultures and the way other cultures approach things. And so because we have a lot of conversation conversations around like blackness and whiteness and, and sometimes some brownness, that there is sort of this, there are so many layers to humans, to people, and how do yeah. we ourselves up to that? And so... Um, and I oftentimes just think about this is how, what is my role in, in disrupting some of these systems? And so it's a small mm-hmm. thing to become aware of what this means. You know, New York city, uh, started to, um, incorporate holidays, uh, in their calendar a few years ago, um, Muslim holidays and, um, lunar new year, mm-hmm. um, new, um, because up until then we didn't have those. And so when you Girl, when I moved to New York and I saw the school calendar, I was like, are we ever gonna be in school? We're I know. We had Yom Kippur off. We had all of these other Jewish right. holidays off. And so, you know, we had Rosh Hashanah off. And so, um, and not all of these, but we had a few others, right? And so what does it mean for us to not just accept these as days on a calendar, but really understand what it is, right? And so it's very humbling to have a seven-year-old to be like, why do we have off? What is this? Why do we mm-hmm. have that? So if I don't have an answer, then I need to figure out how to do that work. Or And hopefully teachers aren't like, hey, you got this day off. Go sleep in. Like, no, this is why the day is happening. That's, that's why you're giving it to I don't know. So she, I, I just found myself really more reflective in this conversation, um, thinking about the marginalized communities, really thinking about like in general, you know, whatever marginalized means, but what it, what does it mean for us to, to really unpack our own socialization and beliefs about different cultures and also push this conversation, which we didn't get to deep about. We talk a lot about intersectionality, but race and gender, but we don't always talk about race, gender, religion. And so Mm, that's so true. Debunk that and talk about that. So 
Yeah. Yeah. I was in my head for most of it. And then y'all came with grief and happiness. And so now (laughs) I'm in that headspace. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That was, that was a great, that was a great affirmation to end on. I felt like, especially during this time um, that we're in right now, you know, like we can't always be in a perpetual state of grief or perpetual state of anger. Although to be black and brown in this country is to almost always have a reason to be for sure. Um, but you know, we're human beings and, and, you know, that's not how we live our lives. And so it, it does make you know, me about how people are like, what's the right way to grieve? I'm like, who the hell are you to tell me how to grieve and when I'm right. Grieving, how much of this right. versus exactly. Yep. Yeah. 100%. So we just hope that if folks are listening to, it's like, you know, one of the things we hope too, is that as all of these stories are being told there, and I heard Dr. Hasina say it today, there isn't one way of being, which is really hard. Cause I think our natural instinct is just to create like buckets and like, it's easier, right. For me to, but there isn't one way to grieve. There isn't one way to be Muslim. There isn't one way to, you know, like there isn't one way to be a woman of color. There isn't one way to be right. woke. Right. Um, right. And so, so hopefully that, that gives us permission to, to be present fully these times. Yeah. And for those of you listening, like, come on with the bathrooms, wherever you work, if you have the power, you really go, you're like, and by the way, that bag, before we go back to it, let me just say, like, if you are fighting about bathrooms, you stupid. Okay. Like, let's just open up some some non-gendered bathroom. Okay. Well, having your informed, you're (laughs) acting stupid is what I was, is what my mom would say. Like, no, you're not stupid, but you're acting stupid. Okay. Like, come on. Let's let's, let's that socialization. What's up with that? What is going on for you? (laughs) As to why you're battling a bathroom? Like, what's happening there? But anywho. Okay. Well, listen. I I don't care. That's a whole other conversation. I don't even use public restrooms, so I don't even care, girl. I'm a camel. I'll hold it. But I'm just saying for other people, this is. Yeah, I'm gonna die on this hill for my advocacy. I'm gonna make that my. What if I make that my platform? Bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, stay tuned for something. Ray posts on bathroom. She's gonna be like, over here, uh, trying to figure out why. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> right exactly okay no all right everybody uh we, we've listening. gone off the deep end Hopefully, with this conversation uh, you enjoyed hearing dr hasina being inspired yeah. by her and her work all right thanks Bye.